Hello, and welcome to Better Strangers. Better Strangers is a thrice-weekly newsletter done by me, Matt Hirschberger. On Mondays, we do a thing called Book Recs, where I give recommendations of books. Wednesdays, I do a column. And Fridays, today, I do a podcast. Um, for today, I didn't have a particularly good thing planned. Uh, as it turns out, <clears throat> if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you've been working a job the whole time, and then you quit the job to go back to writing you may start to uh, slow down a little bit, and the minute you start to slow down, a lot of the stuff that's been overwhelming for a very long time can start to overtake you. So I've had a little bit of trouble getting the amount of writing done I'd like to over the past few weeks. Um, I'm choosing to see this as a good time for me to just process what has now been three years of nightmare (laughs) and... um, uh, yeah, I'm going to get back to writing probably in the pretty near future. I've still got lots of cool ideas. It's just, you know, it's the, the motivation stuff that is uh, particularly difficult. So for today, uh, instead of doing kind of like a, the conversational podcast thing that I've been doing a little bit more lately, I'm going to read one of my older articles. It's the, my, still remains my favorite thing I've ever written, um, which was originally on my, on my website, uh, titled against forgiveness, um, that title proved controversial, uh, in, you know, with some people. And, uh, so I changed it to on, on better strangers to forgiveness in time, uh, which, uh, as it turns out is not a super clicky, um, headline. So, um, you know, pick whatever title you want for it. I'm going to read it here. I'm also going to include a recording. Uh, there's a poem that I, that I, that I cite in the very beginning of it. Um, but at the end, I'm going to include the recording of, uh, Dylan Thomas actually reading this poem. Uh, it's by the poems by W.H. Auden called as I walked out one evening. Um, if you've heard of it, you've probably heard of it through the amazing movie, um, uh, Before Sunrise with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Uh, he, he cites it kind of in that, and he actually explicitly cites the Dylan Thomas recording in it. So I'm going to include, include that here uh, at the end. Um, but in the meantime, uh, this is um, uh, Against Forgiveness. But all the clocks in the city began to whir and chime. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. That is from As I Walked Out One Evening by W.H. Auden. In Carlo Rovelli's 2018 book, The Order of Time, he points to an arresting fact. In all of physics, there is only a single equation that accounts for the existence of time. The equation is the delta of S is greater than or equal to zero. Um, S is the system, and the delta would be the entropy in that. Uh, this is the second equation explaining this. This is the equation explaining the second law of thermodynamics, the law that, is, that establishes the concept of entropy. In its simplest form, this law means that heat passes from hot bodies to cold, never the reverse. This sounds, to an unscientific mind like my own, like an uninteresting fact on its face, but as Rovelli points out, entropy is the reason we only experience time in one direction. It is the reason that the sun's rays damage our skin cells and our warm skin doesn't feel the cold sun. It is the reason that we grow old, not young, and it is the reason why what is the reason that what's lost stays lost. You can't reverse what has already happened. There's no other physical law that accounts for time, so physicists call it time's arrow. Think of it this way. Every moment in time is a card in a deck. You have one card that shows a smooth, unblemished planet, one card that shows a meteor hitting that planet, and another that shows the planet with a massive crater where the meteor hit. Because of entropy, the only way you could order these cards coherently is in that exact order. One, cool planet. Two, hot meteor hitting cool planet. Three, damage hot meteor has done to now less cool planet. 
Each moment has an impact on the next. It leaves its mark. So it, goes, so it goes with all time. You, with your wrinkles and your sore joints and your memories, are an accumulation of all the marks time has left on your body and on your brain. Those marks will never leave you. They may be covered by other marks, they may turn into something else entirely, but once the crater is formed, it's there. The unblemished planet is forever gone. When I was 15, I was on the freshman lacrosse team, and one day the coach wanted to get my attention. I didn't hear him when he called my name, so in a fit of cool guy bravado, he cradled a ball and he lobbed it at me. He aimed poorly, and it hit my left ankle, tearing the ligament, attaching it to my fibula, and leaving me with a sprain. I didn't see this happen. I just felt the pop. My leg gave out, and I hit the ground. The coach told me I must have stepped into a hole in the field and rolled my ankle. My buddy told me later what really happened, that I, after I hit the dirt, he shushed my teammates, not wanting a lawsuit. I didn't particularly mind. It meant that I didn't have to pretend to care about lacrosse. It meant sitting on the sideline without the uncomfortable pads or the worry of disappointing my peers by playing badly. So I shrugged it off and I forgave him. But the ankle never healed right. Occasionally, while I'm walking or running, that outer bone, the fibula, pops loose in an uncomfortable but not painful way, and I shift my weight to keep it from happening again. I've done this every day for 19 years. I am 34 now, and I'm 36 now. I'm 36 now, and during COVID, I started doing yoga to stay sane during the long days with two young kids. I started paying attention to my body for the first time in years, and I realized that my left leg has all sorts of issues. For years, I've had an aroma on my left ring toe, a swollen nerve that sends painful little jolts up my leg when pressure is placed on it. I realized one day that it hurt most when I walked in the way that took weight off of my left ankle so that the fibula won't pop. After long walks, I, I felt that my, the left leg was always more tired than the right. During pigeon pose and yoga, I noticed that my left inner hip was always tight, while my right hip was very flexible. Suddenly it hit me that my coach had done more damage than I'd originally thought, that 19 years of walking weird on my left foot had spread my injury far beyond a poppy, weak ankle. 19 years later, for the first time, I was pissed at my coach. Our culture puts a high premium on forgiveness. We want women to forgive men their creepy transgressions. We want black America to forgive and move past the damage white America has done to their bodies and their communities. We want to move past partisan politics to some mythical time of unity and peace when there was no red America or blue America, only a United States of America. The past is in the past, our era's favorite Disney princess says. Let it go. Of course, this forgiveness doesn't work. Women still get hurt by men, black people are still marginalized by policymakers and murdered by cops. And by insisting on unity, by demanding that we all get along, we are just erasing the violence and the damage. We're rendering the harm null before it even reveals its full extent. We want equilibrium and peace. We want everyone to get along, to move past the unpleasantness, so we can all go back to how we were before. But that's not how time works. Entropy moves in one direction. You can't uncrater the planet. And why would we insist the planet forgive the meteor? The planet doesn't yet know the contours of the crater. It doesn't know how the crater will impact the rest of its existence, if it opened up a tectonic fissure, or if water will begin to pool at its bottom, forming a new sea. What seemed in the early days to be an unmanageable obstacle, an inconvenience to be worked through, later reveals itself to be a permanent feature of the planet. Why must we insist that the planet behave as if it is unblemished? Wouldn't it be better if it, were accept if, if it accepted the crater? Then it could appreciate the ocean that formed in it, the life that spawned in the ocean's depths. When Albert Einstein developed the theory of relativity, it had an alarming implication. Time seems to exist much in the way that space does. We are not capable of perceiving it as such, but in a physical sense, the past still exists. The moment before the meteor hit is just as real as the crater. The moment when you were a kid and were snuggling with your grandma is as real as the moment your grandkid is snuggling with you. Authors have wrestled with this concept ever since. 
Alan Moore equates it to reading a book. The page you turned hasn't disappeared. It's just not the page you're experiencing right now. Some physicists think the future already exists too. You just haven't moved through it yet. Others think only the past and present exist, that the future is TBD. Whether you think the book is finished or is just a work in progress says a lot about what you think about free will. Moore thinks that the book is finished and that we're done, and that when we're done, we just go back to the start and read it again, which means all moments are eternal. They're just pages waiting to be read again. So heaven, in a sense, is your best moments. Hell, in a sense, is your worst. In his epic novel, Jerusalem, Moore imagines the block universe shaped like a football. The Big Bang at one tip, the end of time at another. If you could examine the details, viewing a small chunk of human time in the same way you view space, you'd see, quote, motionless and twisted trunks of intricately textured gemstone that are wound around each other. It might look a bit like a coral garden, unquote. A human, each moment stacked against the next in time, would not look like the bipedal apes we know and love, but like a constantly changing flowing tube. Vonnegut explained his view of time in slightly less surreal terms. In his book Slaughterhouse-Five, the main character, Billy Pilgrim, does the impossible, and he becomes unstuck in time. He zips around to random moments in his life, his death one day, his childhood the next. He comes to understand time differently thanks to the aliens who abduct him and put him into an extraterrestrial zoo. They tell him that they see time, quote, as you might see a range of the Rocky Mountains, unquote. To them, a man is a creature not with two legs, but with millions, like a centipede. Every moment of life stacked next to each other. They see the man as a baby, as a young man, as an adult, as an old man, and finally as a corpse, a full human's life stretched out in a line. What they don't tell Billy, or perhaps what Vonnegut simply didn't imagine, is that the centipede, of course, would not stop with the baby. The baby would slide back up into his mother, and she into hers. In one of his online lectures, Yale biologist Stephen C. Stearns offers a vision. Quote, Think of your mother. Now think of her mother. Now think of your mother's mother's mother. Now I want you to go through a process like you've done in math where you do an inductive proof where you just go back. Just let that process go. Back you go in time. Speed it up now. You're back at 10 million. Now you're at 100 million. Now you're at a billion years. Now we're at 3.9 billion years. Every step of the way, there has been a parent. 3.9 billion years ago, something extremely interesting happens. You pass through the origin of life, and there's no parent anymore. At that point, you are connected to abiotic matter. This means that not only does the tree of life connect you to all of the living things on the planet, but the origin of life connects you to the entire universe. End quote. To look at you over the whole range of time, you would not be physically separate from anything. You'd be one tendril connected through your mother to the enormous roiling totality of, of existence. If you followed that massive crystalline coral garden back to the beginning of time, it would become less complex as heat passed from cold bodies to hot bodies, as meteors sucked their impacts off of planets, as supernova reabsorbed themselves, until it all collapsed into a single boring ball of sameness, into the singularity that came before the Big Bang. Perhaps this is just a matter of personal preference, but the cosmic oneness of the singularity sounds less interesting to me than the fractal complexity of the coral gardens and the centipedes. I enjoy seeing craters on the moon and from Earth. I enjoy seeing the craters on the moon from Earth. A smooth ball would attract less of my attention. It seems to me, if forgiveness is insisting upon a return to the time before the craters, we should reject it. Time's arrow moves ever forward, and it's hard enough to understand this ever-increasing complexity without trying to cram it back into a simpler past. If you have regrets, this rejection of forgiveness may sound, well, unforgiving. But you have a choice to stop making craters. You could choose to see forgiveness as accepting the damage and moving forward, a bit more damaged, but a bit more knowledgeable. And you can take comfort in the idea that those older, purer, more innocent moments still exist. 
just as real as the present, somewhere back there in the Coral Garden. As I walked out one evening, walking down Bristol Street, the crowds upon the pavement were fields of harvest wheat. And down by the brimming river, I heard a lover sing under an arch of the railway. Love has no ending. I love you, dear, I love you, till China and Africa meet. And the river jumps over the mountain, and the salmon sing in the street. I love you till the ocean is folded and hung up to dry, and the seven stars go squawking like geese about the sky. The years shall run like rabbits, for in my arms I hold the flower of the ages and the first love of the world. But all the clocks in the city began to whir and chime. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. In the burrows of the nightmare where justice naked is, time watches from the shadow and coughs when you would kiss. In headaches and in worry, vaguely life leaps away, and time will have his fancy tomorrow or today. Into many a green valley drifts the appalling snow. Time breaks the threaded dances and the diver's brilliant bow. Oh, plunge your hands in water, plunge them up to the wrist, stare Stare in the basin and wonder what you've missed. The glacier knocks in the cupboard, the desert sighs in the bed, and the crack in the teacup opens a lane to the land of the dead, where the beggars raffle the banknotes, and the giant is enchanting to Jack, and the lily-white boy is a roarer, and Jill goes down on her back. Oh, look. Look in the mirror, oh, look in your distress. Life remains a blessing, although you cannot bless. Oh, stand, stand at the window as the tears scald and start. You shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. It was late. Late in the evening, the lovers, they were gone. The clocks had ceased their chiming, and the deep river ran on.